we're so thankful to the Lord that you've made it out. Glad to see um, new faces and faces that haven't, haven't seen in a while uh, coming here and making it um, here to our service. So um, this morning, what we're going to do is we're actually starting a new series. We're going to jump right in, all right? Now, if you remember, we're moving through the Gospel of John, and so far we're in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, okay? Um, but we're going to take a break, and we're probably going to come back to it this year as best as we can. But what's going to happen from now until probably Reformation Week, okay, which is the last week in October, we're going to begin sharing a little bit about where we're going as a church, Okay, for the last uh, nine months, we've had you know, the, the, the joy to be with you and to see the Lord multiply and bring new families and do a lot of things in our midst, even while a pandemic is going on. But what I think we need is to know a way to the future. And so uh, in se- September, we're going to be talking about vision. What, what does this church look like in the next year? And so before even we do that, I... I really felt from the Lord to really, this was actually six, seven, think about this, this was six, seven months ago, okay, when I was writing sermons for now, or thinking about what we're going to preach about in the month of uh, August, and I really felt we need to talk about worship. What is true worship? How does a Christian uh, define true and false worship? And so, uh, of course, COVID happened, and, and forget that, right, there was no, no, it was all about COVID. But as I was looking back, and I, I find it very, you know, from the Lord, that exactly as the time that we're going to begin singing, we're going to actually begin preaching about worship. Isn't that crazy? This is seven months ago, okay, as I was sitting down and thinking about what we would do in, in August. So again, for the next couple of months, we're going to be talking about worship, and we're talking about vision, and what does that look like here at Gar- Garwood Church. And so uh, we're taking that break because we want to define, and, and if you see the, the slide there, it says, a series on the true essence of God-centered worship. Okay, the true essence of God-centered worship. And there's a reason for that word true. Okay, did you know that there is false worship? Okay, when I was um, in, in late, late 90s, early 2000s, you know, there, there was no podcasts, no YouTube of sports the way they do now, right? There's two-minute clips and you get all the information you want. Uh, I used to go to sleep listening to WFAN. Anybody know? I didn't no, get that. Oh. Could you try again? No. No, Siri. No, you, you will not get that. Um, Apple. And, um, and I remember sleeping to Joe Beningo, midnight to 4 a.m. I mean, I used to listen. I wake up at 6 a.m. Then I would put, you know, whatever guy in the morning was. Then at 4 p.m. was Mike and the Mad Dog. But four, another four hours, or 2, 2 p.m. And I remember just sports was just all I gave my energy to. Now, I was a Christian. I went to Sunday morning, but, but my main focus was, okay, but I need to know how Chad Pennington's doing. You know, that, that was my main focus for that week. And my wife, she knew that on Sundays was a time where you don't bother me because after church, 1 p.m. game, 4 p.m. game, 8 p.m. game, right? It was, it was an ordeal for me. So when I say the true essence of worship is the fact that all of us in some way submit to something else, worship something else other than God. We have this propensity to, to, to draw ourselves to other things. For me, it was sports, or sports talk, I guess, or knowing everything I want to know about sports. For other people, it was money. Okay, in fact, Jesus said this about money. You can substitute this verse in Matthew 6. It says this, You cannot serve God and money. In other words, you cannot worship both God and money. You can substitute that word serve into the word worship. 
And so here, here's, as we begin here, the main point is this. We are all worshiping someone or something. Every single person in this room, the moment you get out here and you get with your week, you, you may be worshiping that career, meaning you're submitting your life to it. You're giving your time and effort. You're lifting that thing higher than anything else of your life or a relationship or a dream that you have. We are all worshipers. And so this is non-religious, right? You don't have to be religious to talk about worship. This means that the, that atheist that you know, that person that says, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not religious, that person worships. They give their lives to something else other than God. And we're going to define that more as we go through this this morning. Now, now think about religion, right? Uh, Orthodox Jews, their worship begins Friday evening into Saturday evening. For Muslims, worship is five times a day. For Hindus, worship is an existential experience of the inner light within them. Okay, so, so here's what you have. You have religious, non-religious, all people worship. We're all worshiping someone or something. And so let me give you the reason for that, okay? In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that eternity is written in our hearts, okay? There is something inside of us that God has placed since the moment he made us at the garden. When he formed Adam and Eve, there's this longing for eternity, meaning for this place that we do not yet possess. We feel the need uh, to, to find ourselves in our work and in this age because there's a longing, which is why there's so many books about purpose right now. If you, you go to Amazon and you look at self-help, the first thing you'll see is how to, how to find your purpose, our purpose-driven this, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and there's a reason for that. We're trapped in time. We're, we're, we're eternal beings living in this finite t- stage of time. We desire to understand our place in humanity. There is much more to this than just this. So within us, there is this longing, if I could say this, to tap into eternal things. In other words, if I could say this, worship God. There is a longing inside of us to go deeper than now. And so, so internally, we're being motivated to worship God. Internally, we're being motivated to look higher. And so we go to different religions. We go to atheism, like I did when I was in high school. We, we, do, we fill that internal void. Uh, some people call that the divine sense, that every person in the world has a divine sense that God exists because of the eternity written in our hearts. Let me read to you another way in which we're worshipers or we become worshipers. Romans 1.19 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, watch this, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? in the things that have been made. See, the things that have been made speak that God exists. Speak to the unbeliever, to a person who rejects Christ, that God is real. And so you have these two aspects of this internal motivation, if I could say this internal revelation, that tells you that God exists, right? And then you, you, go, to, you go hiking and you see this, this beautiful peak, right? Or, or you see this beautiful picture uh, and you go wow, like, how did that happen? And you look at a sunset. You think of the, uh, you know, you think of the beauty of the world or, or, or of, the, of the life in the womb, and you just go, how, how does that happen? Just ask a doctor. A true doctor would tell you, like, there's so many things that are incomprehensible when it comes to our physiology and life. And so from the inside, there's a witness, eternity, worship God. From the outside, 
right? Uh, Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night and night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor there are words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Did you know that creation speaks loudly? There is no person in the world, doesn't matter that there's a tribe somewhere in, in the middle of Africa that uh, does not have a witness. God is speaking to them. God is real. So what do they do? They create gods, right? They, they, they make idols for themselves because there's this internal revelation and external revelation that God has made all things. We are without excuse. It transcends human communication. It doesn't speak. There's no words. There's no sounds in nature sometimes, but if you really incline your ear, there's a revelation that tells you God is real. God made that. God is here. And so what's my point? My point is this, that we are all worshipers. We all are made to worship. There is both an internal revelation inside of you going out saying, I need to worship. I need to worship. I need, I need to worship something. Okay? And there's a, a natural revelation. Okay? Don't be afraid by these words. Okay? But just to give you a sense of how to categorize these things. So, so from within, you can't escape it. From without, you can't escape it. But if we do it the wrong way, if I could say the false essence of worship, then we really never fulfill the void that exists within the human heart. Amen? You guys with me so far? So all of us have a void for true worship. All of us have a sense that we need to bow our lives down. But yet, there's something pushing it and pushing it out. So, so the sermon this morning is called The Worship of God. And it's really meant to do one thing. We're going to do this for the next three weeks. We're going to define worship. That's going to be this morning. Uh, next week, we're going, to, we're going to talk about why. Why do we worship? And lastly, um, another week from now, Johnny's going to come up and he's going to preach on how we worship. Like, how, how does the Bible tell us to worship? What is acceptable worship before God? So um, let me pray for us as we dive in this morning and um, really define true worship and whether or not there are things hindering our lives from true worship. Let me pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you're always speaking to us, Lord, from within, that eternity is, is, is real, that you are real, that you are eternal. Father, uh, just uh, bring that out to bear this morning from within. And Lord, thank you for creation. Thank you for all the things that we behold with our eyes and with our ears, with our lives that speak to us, that God is here, that God is moving, that you've made this world to declare the glory of God, to proclaim your handiwork. Father, that your speech is never lost, that there's no escaping from worshiping. There's no escape from true worship. Father, I pray as we open up uh, your, your scriptures and we begin to define it, that, Lord, we may, we may truly be worshipers in spirit and in truth. Father, we love you and we honor your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, to begin this morning, here's what I want to do. I want us to, I want to give you a definition of the true essence of worship, okay? This is, there's a lot of definitions, okay? But I wanted to give you one that I think um, really goes at the heart um, of what worship is. So I'm going to head and read it to you. And I could send this to you, this, these slides, if you want them, or, or the notes too. Uh, but, the, but here's the definition. Worship is our heartfelt response to the beauty, to the revelation of the beauty and majesty of God produced only by God in our hearts. Okay, let me say that again. Worship 
is our heartfelt response to the revelation of the beauty and majesty of God produced only by God in our hearts. Now, if, we're, if we want to get kind of nitty-gritty of, okay, what does worship actually mean? Well, that, that word worship comes from the uh, Anglo-Saxon word worth-ship. That's what the word was. It was simply meant to ascribe worth to something. When we say, what is worship, how do you define that word? simply means, what is it that you ascribe more worth to, right? Uh, you know, if you had two children in a park and you had your child and another child that you don't know, who is more worthy of your attention? Well, your child, right? Because you made them, right? They, they, you love them, right? Think about the, the, the things in your job. You have things that are more important, that are more pressing than others. You contribute worth to those things. And so when we think about worship, we think about worth. What is that which we give worth to our lives in everyday life? And so this is why we begin saying that worship is a heartfelt response. And so the human heart weighs less than a pound. It beats 100,000 times a day, over 2.5 billion times in the average uh, lifespan. Your system, the arteries, veins, uh, capillaries are 60,000 miles long, enough to go around the world more than twice. Okay. Now, this is not just, that's crazy, man. I never knew that. But, but what this is, is that at the center of who you are, to, to exist, you know what you need? Your heart. Your heart is the center of your human life. If you did not have your heart, something went wrong with your heart, your life would cease. To, your life would cease. Heart disease, right, is the number one cause of death in the Western world. And so when we say that, that worship is a heartfelt response, and we're going to flesh that out when we look at the rest of the definition, is to say that Jesus spoke a great deal about the heart. Your heart is the command center for your life. The heart is a metaphor for your inner life. The word Jesus uses means that uh, the heart is where your, your, your spiritual life really exists, where your thoughts, your thinking, your feeling comes out of. God is concerned primarily about the heart. He wants healthy hearts. And here, can I tell you what the problem is? Here's the problem. You know who's not like that? You know who doesn't look at the heart? I don't. <laughs> I don't look at the heart. You know what I look at? I look at what you owe. I look at how you raise your kids. I look at all the external things that make up who you are. Anybody else do that sometimes, right? You, you, you begin to judge people or a book by its cover, right? You begin to look at life from externals of how we do and how we live. And we look at a person and simply assume because they have, you know, they have money, they have success, they must be doing very well. Of course, that's not the case. Because we, you know what we do? We look at the external things of life. But God is the complete opposite. Think about that. Just, just let that sink in for a moment. God does not think the way you think when it comes to worship. It is not that God sees how much you raise your hands on a Sunday. It is not that God sees how much you shout on a Sunday. If that was the case, man, I know some people who would win that. They would, God would really love them. But that is not the way God sees. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but what does the Lord look at? The heart, right? Think about this. If you were to ask, you go, okay, what is, what, what, what is, it, what is the one thing that we want to get right in our relationship with God? What is the one thing that God is after? He's after, you know, just a, a, a nice church? Uh, maybe. <laughs> sure, in there somewhere. Uh, maybe he wants me to just to live a, a whatever life, a perfect biblical life? Yes, yes, that's true. 
But more importantly than all that, what God wants is for you, if he wants to look at your heart and your response of the heart. Here's why. Mark 7, verse 21 and 23 says this, For from within, and here's the key, out of the heart come out evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He summarizes here, all these, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Okay, if you've been married for some time, I mean, we're really good at, at blaming the other person, aren't we? Well, you, well you, it was your fault. Yeah, you're the one that did it. And, you know, we live this, this life of just blaming each other and never doing what? God's looking at my heart, though. It's from my heart. This is where all this is coming from. And so when we say that worship is a heartfelt response, it means this, that there is no response that you produce, uh, that you give, that is not first produced in your heart. It, it is not that, that, that you know, the, the worship was just awful or the church was just not very cool. It, was, it is our hearts are not tender to the Lord. Worship is a heartfelt response in the sense that it is not shallow. It is not surfacy. It is that God wants to go to the deepest recesses of your heart and we either say, no, thank you, or we say, yes, Lord, come inside. It is the deepest place of our souls. It is deeper than your relationship with your wife, than your children. It goes way deeper than that. It is to the very person of who you are. To give Jesus the supremacy, the primary place in our lives, is not merely done in words or statements. It's not just about doing things for God, but it's about letting that truth go right here in our heart. And from that place, all these other things will be fleshed out. Let, let me give you an illustration. Even this morning, a practical illustration of how that works. This morning, we're going to read the Bible. You're going to hear a sermon. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to hear really, you know, worshipful music. We're going to read, we read Psalms and some hymns. Now, let me just say this. That doesn't necessarily mean you worshiped, okay? That doesn't necessarily mean you worship. Here's why. You can be sitting and reading the Bible and hearing somebody preach, and your heart's still what? Like a rock. Your heart's still not soft, we may, we may speak that we come and worship God together, but worship is an internal reality that God has to do through his spirit because it must be a response from your heart. So, so here's, here's kind of the first part of this definition. The worship is a heartfelt response. Worship is your soul bowing down before God. It is not just your physical body, but it is your soul. Adoring him, contemplating on who he is and what he has done. In fact, the root word for that word worship in the Old Testament, when you, when you pick it up, it's always bowing down, bowing down. And so our hearts come with all this baggage, with all this stuff that's just insecurities and issues, self-image, insecurities, uh, anger. It, it has all, we come, and then we come and we go, I'm just bowing that down to you because you are greater than those things. Amen? It's not easy, friends. Trust me, I, I get you. Okay, I failed in so many ways that there are times where I come before God and I go, I don't want to show you that part of my heart. That's like a private thing. Because if I show you, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of what you'll say. But that, that's not the way God works. We come and we worship because he is greater than that uh, problem, than the issues that we have. And so we bow down before God. Okay, so that, that's one. Worship is a heartfelt Response. So let's continue here. So again, let's read the definition again. Worship is our heartfelt response. It begins at the heart, but to what? 
what is it responding to? Is it responding to really cool music, right? To, to great musicians? Is it responding to just a, a great one-liner that Omar gave? Is it responding to, to just how nice the church is? What is it responding to? To the revelation, uh, to the revelation of the beauty and majesty of God. To the beauty and majesty of God. You see, we worship only that which we love. The truth is that most people do not find the person of God worthy of exaltation and adoration. You know what's more exciting? Moving up in my career. What's more exciting? How much, how, how successful I could be. You know what's more exciting? Just my own thing. Sports, right, that was for me. I mean, just, just being drenched in that. That was way more important than the adoration in my heart for God. And so there is a love problem. And here's why, because we love other things. If you're not giving a heartfelt response to God, I'm telling you right now, someone else is getting that heartfelt response or something else, someone or something else. And, and here's what we call that. We call that idols. We create idols in our hearts, and so we, we worship these idols. But here's what's scary. You ready? Here, here's what you're naturally going to see about idols. It's not just that we worship idols, but that all of us will become like the idols we worship. When I was listening to sports radio over and over again, over and over again, you know, you know what came out of my mouth? Sports. <laughs> you know, you know it, when, when I was, um, you know, uh, obsessed with career, you know, you, know what, you know what came out of my mouth? My career, my longing, my, my dream, all, all me, 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 me. That's what would come out. Now, we objectively don't see that, right? Because we're, we're, you know, we're like, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. But trust me, what happens is that when we set up idols and begin to give heartfelt responses to something else other than God, we become like those very things. Omar, where does that say that in the Bible? Psalm 135. Okay, let me read that to you. And it says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those, watch this, Here, here's a big point. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Look what it says about idols. They do not see. They do not hear, okay? There is not even life in their mouths. And that's usually what happens when we follow, when we give heartfelt responses to something else. What we begin to do is we begin to love idols. We submit our lives, our money, our time, our dreams, and we say, this is just so much better and satisfying than God that, you know what, I'm just going to unplug from fellowship for a season. That, you know, I, I'm just going to unplug from reading the Bible for a season. I'm just going to, I mean, do you know how awesome this is? I mean, I love this. And so here is this war between idols, heartfelt responses to idols, and a heartfelt response to God. While true worship is the byproduct of beauty and majesty of God, the beauty and majesty of God, false worship is the byproduct of our idols. So again, we worship, all of us worship something or someone. But the question is, who do we worship? Who do we worship? And so um, to make it a little bit more clear here, what do we mean by beauty, by beauty and majesty, right? Because we're saying that heartfelt worship is a response. So you respond to the idols or you respond to the Lord. And so let me give you, uh, just go a little deeper here uh, about beauty. What do we mean then But when we say that a true heart response, uh, we need a true heart response to the beauty and majesty of God? So have you ever stood before a painting? Okay, maybe you're not an art person. My wife is. But, but she look at something, she go, that's so beautiful. Or, or, or you know, who, who's a parent again here, right? Parents, right? Remember when you were in the, uh, 
delivery room, right? And, and, and you, you, you had your child in your hands. I mean, what did you say when you held your child? Man, he or she's so beautiful. This is so amazing. This is so be- If you're a gardener, you do all that work, and you know what you do? You take pictures of your garden, right? You, you send it out to friends, or, or you invite people. Look at my garden. How beautiful it is, you know? You get a new car. You get a Tesla, Right? Yeah, no, nobody has a Tesla here, right? Okay. Yeah. What do you say? You know, look, look at my Tesla, you know, look at my car. We are, we, we're creatures of beauty. We know what beauty is. Have you ever thought that? Did you just know what beauty is? When I, you know, I have a little uh, David, he's three, and, you know, we'll buy him a toy. He uses it for, like, I don't know, a week, <laughs> and it's broken, right? It's kind of half broken. Then he sees a, the same toy, brand new one. Which one do you think he wants? The new one, right? Because as a three-year-old, you think I taught him what's better? I, I did never taught him. Within him, there's a stamp of beauty. There's something inside of all of us that we already know what beauty is. Okay? We respond to beauty. God, now think about this. God is eternal. And so uh, the way we define beauty is the fact that he is eternal, that beauty is an eternal concept, comes from God and given to us. We don't teach it. We just know it. This is why you can go, again, you can go to an to, uh, old house, and we renew a house, right? We build up, make it beautiful, uh, because beauty is wrapped up in God himself. If God is eternal, and beauty does not come from us, beauty comes from God. John Piper puts it this way, God himself is the absolute original pattern of all beauty, Okay? So then the question is, all right, that's kind of ethereal, Omar. What do you mean God is beautiful? I mean, that, that's just a, a big concept. Well, let me tell you this. Um, before Christ, uh, many of you, can I tell you what your life was like? was kind of trashy. wasn't that good. Your life probably had a lot of issues, a lot of pain. Um, if we could say this, it wasn't very beautiful. But then Christ met you, right? And then you began to walk in a different light. And you know what your life became? Beautiful. And so we think about how is it that God is beautiful? I want you to think about this. Think about his wisdom in your life. Think about how he holds the earth in his hands, the seasons of time. Your life, how he's carried it, not without problem, right? We, we've had a lot of issues. But think about how he's sustained your life, how you're alive to the wisdom of God even now and all the things that have happened in your life to be here at this point. That is a work of art. That's not something you could have done. And that's really what beauty is, isn't it? The fact that we can't do anything, but God does it for us. So we respond to God as we become in awe of his attributes, of his character, his wisdom, his power, okay, his eternality. We become in awe of this person who is so far greater than us that when we look at him, we think of what's behind, like what is he? Who is he? That is beauty. Everything becomes clear when we gaze at the character of God and the attributes of God. So then how is he beautiful? God is beautiful in all that he is. And that concept is not meant to be ethereal, but think about all that he's done personally in our lives. So we respond to his beauty. So that's one. Culture responds to the temporary beauty. We respond to the eternal beauty found only in the person of God. Okay, so what else? We respond in majesty. Now, majesty should give you a royal term, right? You think, you know, the queen, majesty, um, but it denotes authority, power, and reach. So when we say we respond to his majesty, we mean that, that, that he is so much more powerful than me. He can do so much more through a weak prayer than you can do with all your strength. God's scope of power and reach is far beyond what you can comprehend. 
This is why when things are really hard for us, we go to the Lord and we think of his majesty. Okay, Psalm 8, verse 1 and 2 says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set glory above the heavens. Okay, it says this. So, I mean, let me give you, I mean, think about God, the name of God. There is no other name like it. Okay, he is way more important than we are. Okay, uh, if you were at the line of DMV and you were to say, Omar Villacruz, please, you know, show up the line three. Yeah, all right, just go show up. Nobody would say anything, right? But if you say, uh, hey, uh, Peyton Manning, please show up at line four, ears would perk up, right? Because he is, what do you think when you think about a guy like that? Right? Skill, right? Hall of Fame. I mean, you have these attributes that you think of him. Well, that's how, if I could say this, in a way different sense, God is. God's name is so much more majestic than who I am, and therefore I bow down before this reality. In Psalm 2, it says that the voice of the Lord is powerful. Okay, the voice of the Lord is powerful. How many times have you made promises that you didn't keep? How many times have you spoken and the words just go out to the wind? How many plans have you made that you haven't kept? The word of God is majestic. He keeps them all. He's able to do that. His scope and reach is far wider than what you know. Psalm 104 says this, You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Watch this. He is all majestic. There is nothing that God does that is small. I know that this morning you come into church, you have in a car, might be just like, well, that's just regular day. Everything is sustained by God. Your marriage is being held together by God. Our children are being sustained together by God. Our faithfulness in Him in this season of pandemic is being sustained by the beauty and majesty of God. If we do not see that, then we will never respond in true worship. You guys with me so far? Yeah? Amen? So when we think about worship, I want, I want us to, to think about heart response. It comes from within. It comes from, but, but it's a response that is not to idols in our lives, not a response to what we want to hear, but it's a response to the beauty, the character, the attributes of God, and to His majesty, the power and reach of all that He says and all that He is. So let me, let me read again um, the um, definition here that I have for you. Worship is our heartfelt response to the revelation um, the of the beauty and majesty of God, and here, here's what we're going to kind of finish here, produced only by God in our hearts. Okay, now that, that's important here, okay? Uh, our worship, our bowing down before the glory and majesty of God cannot be forced, okay? Tr tr force your kids, you know, uh, to, to worship God. You'll see, you'll see what you get, okay? Means our emotions, our thoughts become submitted to Him only by His power. Our response of worship is not something we could go here, all right, guys, so, so we want uh, everybody lifting their hands every Sunday. We want everybody reading the Bible. We want everybody to just have this incredible time with God. And here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to put some really cool uh, spiritual music to be really instrumental so that people can emotionally get soft. And then we're going to give this really emotional sermon. Believe it or not, there are strategies, uh, you, can look, you can Google this, strategies to get people to be emotionally involved in the worship of God. We're not saying that. I cannot, I don't want to have the skill, power, neither does a worship team, to get you motivated, to get you to respond to God. You know who does? God does. And so when we gather, when we think about worship, it is not us. It is God doing the responding in our hearts. It is the Spirit of God fanning the flame that's within, telling us God exists. Look at God is outside. He is inside. 
We see his majesty. We see his beauty. We just go, oh, man, yes, he is real. I want to worship. In Acts chapter 9, we see this so clearly in somebody's life, in the life of Saul. Uh, Saul was a, a persecutor of Christians. Um, he was one who had, uh, in fact, in Acts chapter 9, you'll read that when um, he actually had uh, the first, he had, he had a part in the first murder of one of the deacons of the church. His name was Stephen. He was right there watching the, 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 the martyrdom of Stephen, and, and he approved of it. You know what approval means? Yeah, let's kill, let's kill that guy. That's what that meant. Thumbs up. And what he was doing is he was writing the names of all the Christians that live in Damascus. And he put a long list. And he said, listen, these guys are next. So he gets on his horse with all his people, and he begins going on this road to Damascus. And he's just holding that list, really excited, want to get it to the rabbi. rabbi said, okay, these are the guys. Can I go kill them? Can I go after them? But he has an experience with God, doesn't he? In Acts chapter 9, he is thrown off his horse. He has this, this incredible uh, shining light experience with God. And, and he hears this, Acts 9, verse 5 and 6. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do next. And I'm going to read the second half of the story. But I want you to just to picture this, that if Jesus did not step in, if Jesus did not have an encounter with Saul, I'm telling you right now, Saul would have been the number one murderer of Christians. And, and for many of us, that, that's the story. That we cannot come and submit our lives to Christ apart from Jesus showing up, amen? We cannot come to Christ apart from the Holy Spirit stopping us dead in our tracks, dropping us off the horse and saying, no, 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 I want to use you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to use you for my purposes, for many of us, that change was progressive, right? You fell off the horse, kind of want to back up. No, no, I still want to do it my own way. He drops you off again, and you keep going, right? Uh, for some of us, it was radical, okay? When it was my experience, I fell off the horse, and I was, I mean, and Brother Edder knows too. It was, it was radical experience. We were never the same. But yet, we all have different stories. But here's the point. When we think about the fact that it's a heart, uh, it comes from God, this response comes from God, it means that we got we to gotta be knocked out of the horse, Okay, this is what Acts 9, verse 17 says, once Paul was with Ananias, a disciple of Jesus who was helping him get better. Then Ananias went to the house and entered, placing his hands on Saul. Can you picture how, how fearful Ananias was? Right? He knew he was a murderer of Christians, right? And he, here it is. He says this, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again. What does he say there? Be filled with, with what? The Holy Spirit. Right? It doesn't say so that you may now live your best life now. So that you may now go live your purposes for God. So that you, you need the Holy Spirit to awaken you, Saul. That's really what's happening. And some of us this morning, when we think about worship, you know what we need? We need the power of the Holy Spirit to just wake us up. That worship is not about us, but it is about God. And look at verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his, he regained his strength. So here's, here's what I have. When it comes to worship, friends, it cannot be manufactured. Worship isn't perfect. Worship isn't professional. Um, I am not a professional. <laughs> There's no perfect prayers, no perfect worship teams, no perfect worship going out to God. Worship that comes from God transforms you from a murderer to an apostle, and he produces worship in the hardest of places. 
if you knew what was going on today in, in the um, uttermost places in, in, in the Middle East and in China, where there is no sound system, where there is no temperature check, where there are no children's ministry, where people are simply just gathering, you know what they're doing? They're just praying and raising up an incense to God. There's no ordained ministers, okay? Because worship is not professional, it's not a professional endeavor. Where there is no sermon, no video, no podcast, you know what we have when we worship? Christ. That's it. After the music stops, after the sound stops, when it's just you alone in worship, it's, it's Christ in you. In fact, uh, what, the beautiful thing about Christ is this, is that Christ is a great intercessor. And all of, can I say, you know, this is, I don't want to offend you here, but our prayers are tainted. Every prayer, every song that we sing, did you know that? That our prayers are tainted? Something called sin indwelling sin, all of our sin. As we sing, it's, it's just throwing up this, this dirty, if I could say this, tainted worship. But hear the good news, that when Jesus died on the cross, he was highly exalted, became the intercessor for the saints. And you know what he's doing with your, with your worship? He's grabbing it. He's purifying it. He's sending it back to God. And you know what God says? I love your worship. But it's not because how perfect we are, how professional we may seem, how great we sing, how great we sound or how great the sermon is ultimately is because how great Jesus is. Amen? When we talk about worship, we bring nothing but filthy rags. But when we come, we can be hopeful and we can believe that Christ takes it, he cleans it up, he puts it with his blood, throws it back up to God and there's rejoicing in heaven. You know what he says? He looks back and goes, man, that Garwood church, man, the way they worship. And here I am saying, the sound is too loud. You know, oh, Johnny, you need to do more worship this way. Oh, we need, we need a drummer. Oh, the sermon's too long, you know. God's up there saying, that was so good, Omar. Your sermon was so rich, so beautiful. And I feel unequipped. I feel so, oh, I'm not good enough, Lord. I'm not, you're saying somebody else, you know. And, but it's not because of me. It's because he takes Christ and he sees the perfect atoning work of Christ, right? And he says, it's perfect. But not because I'm perfect, but because Christ is perfect. And that is the beauty of worship. And so John 4, 23 says this. And, and get this here, friends. Get this here. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers, remember the true essence of worship, right, will worship the Father in a nice platform and really loud music. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> with, a, with an ordained minister that knows how to preach. Nope. In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is looking for you this morning. He's looking for you to submit your life to him through Christ, in Christ, to respond to the beauty of his son. God-pleasing worship is not a matter of a place, but it's a matter of attitude. True worship is not a matter of gifting. It's a matter of the heart. True worship is at, at, at its most foundational level is to elevate God above all that we know and all that we think. And so we do this by properly, what do we mean by worship in spirit? Well, it means it comes from the Holy Spirit. It means that it's centered on nothing but God. We come and say, Holy Spirit, I want to worship you truly this morning. I, I don't feel it. I don't know. I don't really connect in this way because I'm used to this thing. But the Holy Spirit is in you. Did you know that? That when you come to Christ, you have the Spirit of God in you. So we pray in the Spirit. Father, come, help me truly worship you. But that's not it. True worship is seen in truth. We don't want our words to fall by the wayside by our commentary, but true worship is faithfulness to God's word. 
We must worship God as he's revealed himself in scripture, not as I think he should be. So therefore, we worship and submit to his word. In the scriptures and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we find our place in true worship. So again, what is your definition of worship? Let me give you just two ways. This applies to us, and then we'll pray. Let me give you this, um, a challenge for us. Seek to redefine worship in your life. Seek to redefine worship in your life. What is worship? If I was to, we were in a small group and I was to ask you, what is worship? What would your answer be? Well, worship is when we sing. Well, worship is when, you know, whatever it might be. But let me read to you what, what Paul says here in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as living sacrifice. And stop right there. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were acts of worship. They would take a dove, a bull, a ram, they would slit his throat, and they would let the blood be poured out in the altar, and the incense would be considered worship. Look what Paul says here. By the mercies of God, present your bodies, your body, as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. And here's what it says, which is your spiritual worship. So worship is not just music. Worship is actually your entire life. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, he would say that whether you, uh, uh, you know, whether you, whatever you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. It's all worship. All our life is worship. In fact, how you respond to your life's trouble says a lot about the way you worship. The way you respond to heartache and pain when things get tough says a lot whether or not what your definition truly is, it true worship or not. God can be praised even when you do not sing, rather in your daily lives, in your community, and in your family. Worship is not tied down only to platform, but it's tied to your home. Worship is tied to your intimate times with God. So, seek to redefine worship. And let me give you one more. And, th and this does take work here. Ready? Tear down the altars of worship. Tear down other altars of worship. What are the things that you need to um, bow down before the Lord? Um, I remember meeting a couple of brothers um, who really impacted me. Um, who, <laughs> when I would sit with them on a Sunday morning and they wanted to meet on a Sunday, and I would remember uh, it would be just fellowshiping with each other, reading the scriptures together, challenging one another. And I was like, I, I got to catch the Jets playing though, so I'll, I'll meet back with you. Because <laughs> that's how my mind was. I be, as I began to be with more mature men of God, I began to be challenged. I began to, to, to say, man, I, I want that. I want true life of worship. Worship outside of the building and worship at home in all the places in which I live. But that requires work. That requires you grabbing that hammer and tearing that thing down. That requires you grabbing anything you got and reestablishing the true altar of worship in your life. And so um, this morning, as we think about the definition for worship, I want you to remember this. Again, our definition. Worship is a heartfelt response to the revelation and the relation of the beauty and majesty of God produced only by God in our hearts. Would you bow your heads down with me? Um, I just want to pray just for a moment with us. Do you mind if I pray? I'll pray. Just take a moment. Definition of worship. What is your definition of worship?
just feel there's people here who um, just feel lost, who need um, who need to reconnect with God in worship. Don't feel don't feel God anymore. I just want to encourage you this morning. Um, turn your face to the beauty of God. Turn your face to the majesty of the Son of God. Your worship is beautiful before God and its brokenness and its pain. And maybe you don't even understand what you're feeling. The Father's here, saints. Jesus, Jesus is here with arms wide open, desiring our messed up worship and naked and glorious before the Father. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. That as we begin this journey together of singing again, begin this journey of having vision for our church, Lord, that we may make worship a central piece of our culture, a central piece of what we believe as important in the local church. 